The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Medtronic. Medtronic is dedicated to the pursuit of life-transforming health tech. From AI to robotics and beyond, we're reinventing what's possible, and we're just getting started. Visit Medtronic.com to learn more. LinkedIn presents... I'm Maura Ahrens-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever. We look at stories from business leaders who've dealt with anxiety, depression, or other mental health challenges, how they fell down, how they pick themselves up, and how they hope work will change in the future. We're told again and again in the business world that the way to be successful is to follow your passion, do what you love and be authentic. Jill Smokler is someone who did just that. She created the blog Scary Mommy in 2008 as a way to talk about her own journey as a mom with small children, her very imperfect journey, and along the way she built a community for other moms who were thinking, this stuff is messy. The main takeaway from her blog was, you don't have to be perfect. But still, the acceptance of imperfection is hard. And as Jill sold her company and faced some dramatic personal challenges, she felt desolation and depression. She actually reached out to me about talking, to talk about how hard it was in the aftermath of selling the company she built from a little personal blog into a big media company, and how her mental health challenges impacted the decisions she made and how she felt along the way. Entrepreneurship is so idolized in a lot of our cultures And the exit is supposed to be the icing on the cake, the feeling you've made it. But the exit for many of us is actually only the beginning of what can be a painful new phase. It was so hard for me to find honest conversations with founders who left their companies and really struggled afterwards with the emotional detachment with, you know, just their schedules, with missing co-workers, with the, their pride and joy no longer being that anymore. So there's not a lot of that that's talked about. It's really glamorized. And that was not my experience at all. The sale and especially the subsequent sale were really heartbreaking. I started my conversation with Jill Smokler by asking her how she started and built her company, Scary Mommy. I started Scary Mommy because I was home with three kids who were, I had a newborn, a two-year-old and a four-year-old, and I was really just looking for some sort of project of my own. I'm a serial starter of projects. So it was really nothing new when I reached out to family and friends and was like, I'm starting a blog. Can you please follow along? It'll probably fizzle out in a couple of days, but just follow along for now. And I really didn't intend for it to become anything more than an alternative to Shutterfly, you know, albums to send out with pictures and stuff. But it really caught on quickly. And the name Although it has evolved into being this sort of, you know, brave, authentic, say-it-all type, you know, mama bear woman, um, didn't start that way at all. It started because my middle son, who was two at the time, was going through a stage where he was afraid of everything and prefaced 
everything was scary. So it was like, I can't eat that sandwich. It's scary grilled cheese. I can't go to bed. Scary bed. (laughs) Scary, scary Lily. And he referred to me as scary mommy when I was thinking of a name for the blog. And I was just like, that's perfect. And the URL wasn't taken and I snagged it up. So it had very innocent beginnings (laughs) in terms of the name. He still to this day will say, you know, I think I deserve, you know, a cut of this, that, or the other thing because I named Scary Mommy. <laughs> like, nice try. I named you and birthed you. <laughs> so good luck with that. What was the trajectory of Scary Mommy? How did it grow? It felt really slow at the time. It wasn't in retrospect, but it grew from my individual blog where I was writing every day. And then I gradually started. I called it the Scary Mommy Society. I'd have guest bloggers blog every Tuesday and Thursday. And in return, I would blog on their sites. That's how we did it back then. And then I I graduated to sort of having more of the guest bloggers and a little less of me when I started focusing on writing books and doing starting a nonprofit and, and doing some other things. So that's when it really started to take off. And then I think the really pivotal point was when I added the confessional, which was an anonymous sort of Twitter-like entity where you could go and type in a confession. It was totally anonymous, and they ran the gamut between everything from I fed my kids mac and cheese, you know, three nights in a row to I'm standing in the closet, you know, pulling my hair out and crying with my kids on the other side. And I don't know how I'm going to open the closet and walk out. And, you know, the only commonality being they are so relatable in this experience called motherhood. And Mm -hmm. that really in terms of page views and taking the site to the next level was really what did it. And from there, things just really grew and sort of spiraled. And it got to the point where it just became too much for me to handle. Well, let's talk about that. Was there a moment when you started thinking about selling it? There were many moments. Um, Yeah, I'd say once the site was really monetized and I was able to hire a staff and I felt like they were dependent upon me, that's when it became scary to know that I had to keep up the page views to pay the bills, to pay the people. And it just, that felt like it was too much business. I am not a business-minded person. I'm a creative person. Mm. And I felt like I sort of was at a crossroads where I could either get help and bring on, you know, somebody in a role of partnership of some sort, or Mm -hmm. I could unload it. And I am such a control freak that for some reason, the idea of selling it entirely seemed like an easier transition than bringing on a partner because I just couldn't (laughs) imagine bringing a partner onto this project that was all my I, I the thinking is not rational it makes no sense in retrospect I, I really clearly was not thinking very wisely but my whole life have really had trouble with partnerships and even when I think about like elementary school and partnering up with you know kids and doing projects it always drove me crazy so I just couldn't imagine which doesn't make any sense that I would be put into a position where I was working for a company I mean <laughs> sense at all. But yeah, that's that's where I ended up there. So you were like, okay, 
I'm feeling stressed and anxious. This is a lot of pressure, but I I just need to Here buy out. it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Really? Really? Uh, pretty much. I mean, I was just so I had dealt with a series of health issues and mental health issues and I was just like at the end of my rope and so burnt out. I don't think I understood what burnout was until that moment in time, but I just Mm. couldn't take it anymore. I wasn't sleeping. I was working constantly. I had a small staff, but we were just, we were so scrappy and just doing, you know, we had this facade of being this, you know, successful company, but it was just a couple of us who were holding everything together. I would go in and try to make some tweak in the site and I'd mess up the HTML coding with like an extra, you know, apostrophe and it would bring the site down for an entire day. (laughs) I just didn't know what I was doing. So yeah, the opportunity arose. I was talking to a gentleman about my third book, which was a collaboration with my community. And he was interviewing me and made an offhanded comment about being in the market for a parenting site. And I made an offhanded comment about being in the market to (laughs) unload a parenting site. And things happened very quickly from there. Oh my Um, God. Yeah, it was... I mean, at the time, I, I thought the timing was meant to be. Now, I think the timing was very, very fast yeah. and not, not the smartest. But I think we make not the wisest decisions when we are exhausted and can't see the light and just need to get out of the darkness that we're in. And that's where I was. And someone comes along with a life raft. Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly what it was. Were you struggling with your mental health? while you ran Scary Mommy? A little bit. I've always been an anxious person. And I'd say I've always been a somewhat depressed person. But it really was after I left Scary Mommy that I felt like my mental health just came crumbling down. So you sold Scary Mommy. And how did it How did it feel like those two days before you knew the paperwork was going to close? How are you (laughs) feeling? The two days before were so exciting. Right. I mean, that was, that felt like a really big deal. Mommy bloggers don't sell blogs, and that just felt awesome. And I couldn't wait to make the announcement. And it was at Blogger actually when, when I was able to announce it. So it was just so fun and exciting. And it was, awesome. And the first few months, the first year was so exciting. I mean, it was so fun to walk into an office and see this huge scary mommy neon sign and have everyone in the office, you know, look up when I walked in and know my name and be excited to, you know, talk to talk to me about the projects. It was it was so exciting and so fun for that finite period of time which I look back at very fondly. So you went with the sale? Yes. I stayed with Scary Mommy for two years after the sale went through. Was that an earnout period or was that it your was. choice? It was, yeah. It was the a year was an earnout period and then a year I stayed on. And I remember when the commitment originally was a year and then the two years, I thought, like, that's nothing. I want to be here for 10 years. I'll see the company through you know, when I have grandchildren, I, you know, I'll be here forever. And then 
as the two years were coming to a close, it's like, how much longer do I have? I was looking at the clock just ticking down. It was the end was not bittersweet. I'd say it was just very bitter. Because of interpersonal stuff or it just wasn't a fit? Like how did this was your baby? I always I always called my company my fourth baby. I have three kids. Oh, and then, me too. My fourth baby, a hundred percent. So what happened? Yeah. I think when I first sold it, I was almost, I wouldn't say idolized, but I was put on a pedestal of having created this and they were so excited to have bought it and everything was glossy and exciting. And I was looked at as the resource who knew everything. And I think the more clear it became that the site could be so much better optimized for making money, Mm -hmm. my opinions became less and less important creatively. So, you know, Mm. ad revenue started going up. And so we needed to start increasing ads and increasing page views. So with that comes subpar content and Mm. BuzzFeed type quizzes and listicles listicles and just the type of content that you're just waiting for people to create stupid content so that somewhere can cover it and you can swipe it from somewhere and somewhere can swipe it from you. And it's just not quality content anymore. It just felt like I wasn't offering a service to moms anymore. And Mm -hmm. that was what I felt like was so fulfilling about Scary Mommy. And it really didn't have that magic anymore. And I was feeling the same way I felt before the sale where I felt so burnt out and exhausted and like I just couldn't take it anymore. That's how I felt towards the end. I was so tired of arguing with management and trying to reject advertising campaigns that they were pushing on me and trying to stand up for the community and authenticity and all that kind of stuff and just feeling like that wasn't the priority anymore, which broke my heart. But also understanding that it was a business and it had a lot of people to support and a lot of bills to pay in an office in Chelsea. And it wasn't just me on my couch in my living room anymore. So that was reality, but it wasn't an easy reality to swallow. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. I was listening to you on the What Fresh Hell podcast, which I love. Mm. And you talked about also feeling like you were old at the office and that you were no longer chosen to be the spokesperson. Yes. Yes. There was definitely a shift in the, I'd say, ideal demographic Mm -hmm. for the site. When it began, it was really it was really me and my friends and my family. So very imperfect, flawed women just trying to muddle through. And then it graduated to a more glossy Kardashian influencer 
angle, which I felt like was really not representative of the core purpose, you know, of, of the site at all. That was tough to see. And it's hard. Like you said, it's your fourth baby. And it's it's hard when your fourth baby doesn't go the direction that you want them to go. It's, yeah, it's tough. It's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking. So you left. I left. I left and it felt so good to quit. I left pretty <laughs> impulsively because I felt really aged out and undervalued. And it just felt really good to say, I've had enough. I am in control and I'm leaving. Mm-hmm. And then I woke up the next day and I said, what on earth did I do? <laughs> I made a huge mistake. Can I just like open Apple Z and go back in time? <laughs> and Why? No. Why? What happened? Well, I realized that my entire identity was wrapped up in Scary Mommy for the past decade. It was everything. It was my all of my relationships because I'd either brought in friends or made them. It was 10 years through the company. It was my structure. I all of a sudden had no structure. I had no, I was going to New York two or three days a week. I had no travel. I had no business calls. I just had no excitement in my days. I had nothing. I just went from such excitement and stimulation to nothingness. And I was, my marriage had had ended. So I was living alone half the time. And I was just so lonely and Mm. depressed and it hit me like a ton of bricks and just yeah for two years I'd say really knocked the wind out of me and took a really long time to get put back together and then COVID hit so it was sort of like just kidding (laughs) there's a little bit of a you know joke for everybody for the next year or so so you can't really get out of this but the last year I feel like has finally um turned a bit of a corner and I can sort of see a future without Scary Mommy, which I couldn't at all in the year or two after. I really felt like I, I'm i never going to have a functioning brain again. And that was my one crowning you know, accomplishment. And I'm just going to have to figure out some way to make a minimal salary and keep my house and pay the bills and it'll be fine. But I really felt like my heyday was over, which I still is something I still struggle with. Yeah. But yes, those those first few days and weeks of leaving Scary Mommy were not easy. Did you get clinically depressed? Oh, yes. <laughs> You're like, oh, got, yes. <laughs> oh, my God. I got clinically depressed. I got <laughs> diagnosed with anxiety. I got diagnosed with bipolar um, disorder. I... Yes, it was. I went from never seeking therapy or any type of psychiatric help to needing all of the help and all of the medication and all of the resources, all of the therapy, all of the visits. Um, I just could not do it alone. So, yes, I was definitely diagnosed and definitely needed all of the help I could get to crawl out of it and couldn't believe how difficult it was and still. Can't believe how difficult it is. I had a therapy appointment yesterday and I was crying to my therapist and saying, Am I ever going to feel better? Am I always going to feel so depressed? And then I talked to my psychiatrist today and was telling her, Yeah, I feel I feel pretty good today. It's a good day. So it's just, it's a roll, it's always a roller coaster. And that just feels like the way it's going to be. 
The thing that I hate most about depression is that feeling of, am I ever going to get better? Yes. And how hard even the smallest thing, like brushing your teeth or going downstairs to feed the cat, feels. Yes. It's amazing. Yes. And and to go from being this like high-powered executive who sold her company, who was always in New York on the, the cella, to the person who like, oh, God, I can't possibly make a doctor's appointment. That must have been really weird. It's so true. Yeah. It's so true. And it's so strange how the simplest tasks become so daunting. I mean, we're talking about to-do lists before. I would have my list of like call the dentist, cancel Verizon, just such minimal things that I could not get myself to do, not out of laziness. I just couldn't Can't do talk it. to the person on the other line. I just could not rally myself to have the energy to do it. It was so difficult. Just the most menial tasks, my laundry would be just overtaking the house, everything just felt out of control. And it's amazing when you feel better, how the little things just are so little and insignificant. And when you're depressed, they are they just take over your life and you, you it's impossible to function. Yeah. I always say I prefer when I'm in an anxiety period than when I'm in a depressive period, because at least when I'm anxious, I get a lot done. I have energy. Oh my God, try mania. My manic episodes oh, are the best thing ever. Oh my God. I mean, the amount of time I've spent obsessing about like if I could only flip a switch and be manic instead of depressed <laughs> more. Like, I am so productive. I am so genius. Like, I can change the world. I can do anything. I'm magic. And then, you know, I snap out of it and I can't get out of bed. But for that period of time, it's the best thing ever. Oh, my God. I interviewed Paul English, who co-founded Kayak.com, you know, $2 billion exit. Yep. He has bipolar one. And he said, if I could bottle the manic feeling, it would sell for millions of dollars. Like, that's how good 100%. it is. It's like the best drug you could ever take. Exactly. I yeah. don't have much experience with drugs, but I can't imagine there being anything better than that feeling. You just feel like you are on fire. And I remember just, you can't stop. I would just feel my whole body. I would just watch it shake because I just had so much energy. I just couldn't get it out. I would call everybody in my contacts and tell them about <laughs> the genius ideas I had. The amount of damage control I would have to do after my manic episodes, the amount of returning I had to do, the amount of visits to the UPS store <laughs> to return oh. things to Amazon. Oh my goodness. Because you would um, overbuy stuff. I would feel this compulsion to buy. And I normally very, very thrifty and like shop at TJ Maxx and Target and like very budgeted and regimented. But when I'm in an episode, I just have this compulsion to spend. I paid off my car. I don't have the money to pay off my car. I put it on a credit card. I just felt like I need to spend a massive amount of money and I need to do it in a very smart way. And to me, it was like, what purchase could I make that is smart? And I thought, huh, it's like a several, you know, $10,000 payment on my car. Like, why don't I just pay it off with my credit card? That seems really wise <sighs> and not really wise at all. 
<laughs> nor was like the massage chair I bought that I don't use or, <sighs> you know, the just the many things that I had to pay for and figure out how to pay for after the fact. But it is in terms of my relationships, my bank account, my just a lot of things. It is very damaging, mm. but boy, does it feel good. So when you got the bipolar diagnosis, I mean, do you think in retrospect, you were always bipolar? I think I always had tend I think I was definitely always anxious and depressed, for yeah. sure. That goes back as long as I can remember. The bipolar, I really think it was a culmination of so many things happening at once. My divorce, scary mommy, my health issues. And then I was put on Zoloft and steroids at the same time, which wow. can have a reaction of bringing on an episode. So we think that's possibly what happened. But truth is, who really knows? I could have always had it. I, I don't really know. It, it was diagnosed right after I left Scary Mommy. And so now, you know, I'm fully, I could not operate without my medication. I tried it once and it was really a bad idea. I learned a lesson the hard way that you don't mess with your medication. And there's a reason you work with a doctor to come up with exactly the right plan. Yeah. yeah but yeah, no, I think it's, I think to a degree, it's always been with me. I interviewed Andy Dunn, who co-founded Bonobos clothing brand and also sold it for a lot of money. Mm -hmm. He's bipolar. And, and I asked him, do you think you could have still founded your company if you didn't have that hypomania? And, and he said, mm -hmm. I don't know. Yep. I loved that interview. Oh, thank um, you. And I related to that so much because I think about all of the highs that I had in my life when I started Scary Mommy, when I was going on book tours, when I was promoting the nonprofit that was so amazing. And they were such incredible highs. And they were always followed by such incredible lows. Mm. And at the time, I just sort of thought, you know, what goes up must come down, not really realizing that that's not the way that other people live. They don't always live so dramatically. And that really sort of looking back, I think my life was kind of a pattern of ups and downs, but never so much as after I left Scary Mommy, because that down was yeah. was a year long and the ups were. It's such a shame how short-lived the manic episodes are and how in bipolar two. It's it's not fair. I mean, you you pay for like two or three days with a year. <laughs> it's just not fair. It should be even. It should be at least, you know, 25% or something. It's just a ripoff. It's no I want, I want my money back. I don't like it at all. I know. And it's <sighs> it's so hard because I feel like I feel like for me. I also have a bipolar 2 diagnosis, but I, I don't know if I believe it. But, um, you know, when I'm in an up phase, I may still feel anxious, but mm. I am so creative. Mm -hmm. I, I am like the idea machine. Yes. And I, like, I don't really have high highs, but I go through these intensely productive and generative phases where I have so much energy and nothing can stop me. And I'm going to write that next yes. book. I'm going to start that new company. And, yes. and, and as a result, 
I do great things sometimes. And as a result, my life is always really chaotic and stressful. Yeah. <laughs> like, did I really need 14 chickens? I don't know. <laughs> I have like 16 cans of chickpeas. I don't eat chickpeas. I don't make hummus. I have no reason for having them, but I ordered them from Costco in an episode. Well, I don't know. Someday maybe I'll use them. But the hard part is that I do feel like I am my best self in those episodes. Like you said, I am so creative. My ideas are so good. And even when I look back on them years later, I'm like, oh my God, that was a really, like I could have really gone somewhere with that. Or I'm still trying now to recreate ideas I had two years ago Mm -hmm. in an episode. So it's almost more frustrating that it's not all in your head and that, you know, when you come to your senses, you realize it was just created in some sort of frenzy and it's not real. The problem is that it's real and it's so good and you just want to spend all your time getting back to it. Mm. So I know that you're not yet probably 100%. Would you say that's true? I don't think I will ever be 100%. Really? I'm definitely not. Yeah, I don't think I'm a 100% person. (gasps) Me neither. I mean, yeah, is there any, I I don't think I will ever feel 100%. Yeah, I'll always have a tinge of depression and sadness and anxiety. I think that's just my personality, no matter how hard I try to fight it. I look at dating apps these days, like I said, I'm single, and people will say like positive vibes only and nothing gets me to swipe faster. (laughs) (laughs) That's just not me. Sorry. Uh, Yeah. So no, (laughs) definitely not. (laughs) I hate to ask you for advice, but I'm going to ask you for advice. Mm. How would you instruct an entrepreneur who's already struggling and who exits or even not an entrepreneur, anyone who's sort of in a period of disruptive, stressful change from a job or an identity that they used to have, what do you wish you had known about the aftermath? And and could you have prepared for it better? Hmm. I wish I had known how hard it would be. I was not prepared for that at all. I was prepared for exuberance and celebration and fun and all the positives. I had no idea how emotional and just the the repercussions that I'd face. And I wish that I'd I wish that I'd heard some of the podcasts you'd done. I wish I'd had more conversations with entrepreneurs who were disappointed in their departures. I think I would certainly tell anyone to really take care of yourself that it's hard. It's your so much of your identity is wrapped up into your company and you you love it and it's your baby and it's really hard to give up control. And I think that's what I would say after leaving the company. I think in terms of selling it, I would say definitely be open to bringing on help and Mm. realize that you can't do everything. I think that was something that I really didn't appreciate at all. I thought I knew everything about the brand. I had all of the answers. And I realized I don't have all of the answers. I have the creative side of me and I founded this company and I know its roots and where I'd like it to go, but I don't know the business. I don't know, you know, strategy the right way. There's so much that I could have learned by bringing someone else on. And I definitely should have been more 
thoughtful and strategic about my decisions. So I would advise someone to do that. You know, there's a lot of shoulds. Yes. You know, Laura Mays, who we both know, who's the Mm co-founder of of Mom 2.0, which is a wonderful conference. This year at the first post-COVID conference, she said, I'm just asking everybody for grace and space. Mm. I'm trying to figure this out. And I think that- That's beautiful. You know, but when you're struck with a case of the shoulds, you know, you can only do what you can do with the information you have at the time. Exactly. Exactly. And that's what I'm trying to do with my marriage and my career and, you know, even parenting is I did the best I could at the time. And all I can do is look forward. And I certainly learned a lot from it. And I'll take that into the next stage of my life. And I'm grateful for the time I had there and the relationships I made and the difference that I feel like we did make during that time. I feel like Scary Mommy was did really contribute something to motherhood during the time that I was running it. And that makes me really happy. It did. So as we close, are you working on a new project? I am. I'm working on a new podcast called She's Got Issues, <laughs> which is <laughs> sort of the next the next phase of life after Scary Mommy, all of the common stuff that women face at this point, you know, from everything we've been talking about, depression, anxiety, raising older kids, financial issues, just all of the stuff that isn't talked about enough that I'd really, I'd like to learn about more and I'd like to talk about more. So starting with the podcast and then hopefully growing it into a community and then We'll see. I just want to start forming relationships again and working with women like me. I miss it. I miss the connection. I've been cooped up in my house for way too long, and I'm just ready to ready to start talking to people again. I'm with you. I'm with you. Oh, well, I, I'm going to listen to that podcast. Thank you so much, Jill. Thank you so much. It was so fun to talk to you. That's it for today's show. Our show is produced and edited by Mary Dew. Our assistant producer and sound engineer is Nick Krinko. Many thanks to the LinkedIn Presents family, to all of our guests for sharing their stories, and to our advertisers who bring you the show. If you love The Anxious Achiever, tell your friends. Subscribe, leave a review, follow us. You can also tweet me at MoraAM or find me on LinkedIn, where you can follow me, message me or subscribe to my newsletter for more from the anxious achiever world. Thanks for listening.